Welcome to the RGG EDU podcast, where they talk a little photography and drink a lot of whiskey. Season three of the RGG EDU podcast is brought to you by Smug Mug. Yeah, they got a ridiculous grin and the name is funny, but Smug Mug is serious about photography. If you're ready to upgrade your photo game online, get your ass over to SmugMug.com to see where the pros are storing, showing, and selling their images. In this episode, we're joined with the one and only Ben Von Wong and alongside Robertus Grimas. I'm always by your side, Gary Martin. Ben, you're my favorite Canadian. I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Ooh, Renee's going to be pissed. Yeah. That's all right. That's okay. She can be wow, pissed. Wow, you just bummed out Renee Robin. <laughs> you know what? That's fine. I That's kind of our relationship. She's always somehow mad at something. And <laughs> it's better to keep her on her toes. So, Ben, thank you so much for hopping on season three. Thank you for having the me. the podcast. We're, we're just, just joyous that you're here. Just joyous. Ecstatic. <laughs> that we are. That we are. We're joyous. So, for for our audience who might not understand kind of what you do like how would you describe both of them the two people that don't understand how what would you say you do here didn't we go over this yeah (laughs) we have this is a whole new thing let's let's do it one one more format the final time the final time uh what do i do um i think that i'm best described as a campaign creator Uh, most people know me as a photographer but i uh, design campaigns from start to finish, from the conceptualization to the shooting, video, photo, blog post, marketing campaigns. So I think campaign creator sort of sums it up. And I'm currently focused on social entrepreneurship and uh, any form of that, uh, making the world a better place. Campaign creator is a completely unique position because in many ways you're taking the position of the creative director, the executive producer, um, the, you're like the ad agency and the photographer all rolled into one which is an unusual place to be. Should be charging five times the amount. <laughs> well, right now I'm having a great time working for free, but uh, when I do charge, it goes pretty high. So it works out, equalizes itself, I think. Can we back up a little bit and, and discover your, your pathway? Um, like, What was your early work like? And when you talk about being you know, the creative um, or the content maker now that you are, where were you initially? Yeah, so I've had uh, numerous... Uh, phases within my photography career uh it started off like with most people just learning how the tools work the photography uh learning how to use a camera learning how to use lights um started off doing a lot of events weddings all that stuff um and then over time i realized that uh photography had become a job and i didn't want that to happen i had i was still an engineer at the time and so i uh quit the event and business side of photography and just focused on creativity and uh doing cool projects, experimenting, uh, pushing the limits of what I normally did. And along with that, I learned that if I shared the process of what I did, the creative side of photography, I uh, would uh, generate significantly more traction uh, within the viewership of my content. And so over time, I became a little bit of an educator. Uh, And when I quit my job, I just started traveling around the world and I'd teach a workshop somewhere, uh, get a free plane ticket somewhere, and then create something new while I was there and just keep on hopping from one place to the other until I reached the point where I was eventually able to get work that I wanted to do um, to the point where I eventually got my first global campaign um, with, uh, with a huge corporation, got paid a lot of money, and uh, realized that wasn't what I was really after anymore. And so I took a step back, uh, almost quit photography, actually, and moved off into video, only to realize that I wasn't that great of a videographer. <laughs> um, and... Uh, 
and decided to uh, refocus on social entrepreneurship, which is where I'm at today, and uh, looking to convince corporations that their campaigns can be even more awesome if they took the time to find the right social angle to it. What was the aha moment that said, okay, I, I really need to kind of pull back the veil and share this stuff? Was that a conclusion that you came to or were you inspired by some other photographers that were kind of sharing? Oh, it was a total mistake. Uh, my, or just an experiment. My girlfriend at the time was like, hey, we should totally make videos of you doing your shoots. And I'm like, why would I do that? No one would ever watch me. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and we didn't have money for a camera at the time. So she, uh, we bought a camera and you got a 15 day return policy. So she mm -hmm. dropped in, bought a camera and made a video. We returned the camera, put it up online. And it was like, oh my gosh, the same exact photo shoot that I would have done got like 10x the number of views than it ever would have gotten. And this was in the glory days of behind the scene videos where very few people were doing it. It was like, right, when Chase Jarvis was uh, totally leading, leading the charge on that. And you had like Joe McNally and Zach Arias and all these other guys. And uh, F-Stoppers was putting out one video a day. So if you got featured on F-Stoppers, it was like, whew, it was gold. Awesome. Yeah. And, uh, well, those days are gone now, but. <laughs> <laughs> now it's multiple videos a day. Yeah, yeah Barrage. Now, yeah. If never... you're not doing 10 videos a day, you're, right. you you're, suck. You're failing. Let... But the idea of sharing is still incredibly important. I mean, it's, it hasn't diminished in any stretch. Uh, I think sharing with intent is probably the, the, right uh, way. the big differentiator because you can't just create content and expect people to watch it. You have to be delivering something of value that is either providing entertainment, education, inspiration, whatever that thing is that you want to be known for, you have to know why you're creating it. You can't just create random things and hope that people share it because it's out there. So what images do you think you're best known for? Is it stuff from the early days? Is it most recent stuff? I think I'm best known for my underwater photography. Um, uh, it. I think when I first tied models underwater in a shipwreck 30 meters under, uh, it was like the first time I truly went viral. It was featured on tons of places uh, that I never even heard about. And uh, to the point where I was trending on Facebook. And uh, I haven't necessarily been able to replicate that success, even with um, even though I've tied more people underwater. <laughs> and uh, I did... You know, my project when I put a mermaid on 10,000 plastic bottles has 30 million views, but I feel like that currency of 30 million views today um, was maybe worth less than the 1.5 million that I got a while back. You, you know, know a, a lot of people, I think even before that, you were kind of known as the fire guy. How did that come about? I'm known, in the, I'm known as a fire guy within the photography community, so it never really transcended that. Like, I've never really gotten out of... Uh, like my firework hasn't really gone international, if you will. Um, it's really mainly known within the photography community because I was the only one that was doing it consistently and interestingly uh, using fire not as an effect but a tool to tell a story. So um, the fire would imply movement. It would imply, uh, you know, some kind of emotion or sense of, uh, you know, danger within the image. And so I was using it as a, a storytelling device that uh, somehow I did fairly interestingly. I think I got bored of it after about a year and a half but it for a while i was doing a lot of firework you still breathing fire still i teach people how to breathe fire from time to time if you guys want to do that we get, should uh, get a bottle of everclear what do, we, <laughs> what do we need to do that right now on this uh, podcast classically you would use liquid paraffin nope uh, what can we can we do everclear we have a ton of booze here what can we do for i want to see rob <laughs> breathe fire oh god no i'm risk averse i'm not going to do that <laughs> i'll do it yeah, you'll do it. I'll awesome. Do it. Awesome. We can just drop by a hardware store after this and you'd probably light on fire just by going outside. <laughs> it's a little hot. So hot. 
You don't seem to be very risk averse. Like taking taking models down thirty feet, you know, underwater and tying 100 them. Hundred feet, hundred thirty meters. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a risky proposition. So, how how are you finding the people that are willing to do that? And quite honestly, from um, like a risk management point of view, how do you handle uh, do, like the insurance issues, or do you? I mean, is this just everybody coming together? Like, let's try it. Yeah. Well, I I always work with um, people who know way more than I do. So it's mm-hmm. basically work with people who are smarter than you are, who've done it before. And so basically all these, any project that involves dangling someone off a cliff or lighting a person on fire. So you have someone to like point that. the finger at. I like that. There's I someone like else that's responsible yes. for the, the execution, but <laughs> like they, they get to call the shots. So they get to say, you know, if they say it's, it's over, it's Too over. risky. Like, yeah, yeah it's, not, it's not my shot at that Have point. you had that happen? Like your idea couldn't come to fruition because it was too dangerous? So they're like, no, I don't want to be part of this. No, it's not. It's not usually like that. It's more along the lines of uh, these are the constraints. This, this, these are the parameters that you have to work under. Um, these are my rules. Sounds too safe. Sounds like you're not pushing the limits. <laughs> Sounds like you could go further. Dude, have you watched all of his videos? They're crazy. <laughs> that's why it's funny, Rob. That's how, I know. That's how humor works. <laughs> you should try it out sometime. He needs to drink more. If he drank more, it'd be more funny. So we spent the day kind of going through a, a lot of what you're doing now, but I want to I want to hop into your Instagram feed. Of, Can I take of, off my glasses? Oh, yeah. Sure. All right. Um, you recently dangled a woman off of a cliff that's in a wheelchair. And oh, like, yeah. T- talk to me about that story. That That's a really cool... That's a cool story. Well, so SJ is a mother with a, a, a son right now who's... I, I think he's seven right now. But uh, she used to be like a full-on adventurer, travel professional, and she'd go around and abseil and teach people how to climb mountains and dangle off of them. And then she went in one day for a routine shoulder surgery uh, that went wrong and woke up paralyzed. And uh, for like, I think two years, they just kept saying that things might get better, just need to go through rehab, hoping things would work out. And and I think it reached a point where it was just like not going to happen. And uh, that was how she was connecting with her son. Like they'd go on adventures together. That was what they would do um, as like, you know, mother, uh, son bonding time. And... um, when we stumbled across the story, we're like, oh man, it, you know, she's someone who's managed to push through it despite it all. And, you know, was still fighting to, uh, you know, make the best of her life and wanted to, uh, t- share her story, um, help her, uh, get some visibility for, uh, the things that she was fighting for and to help her reconnect with her son. So we, um, we did the photo shoot. Um, it was, uh, mostly organized logistically by Karen Alsop who's a photographer out of Australia. She reached out to me and she's like, hey, you're in Australia. We should do something together. I have Adobe on board and they'd love to uh, support a, um, a great cause. Do you have anything in mind? And so uh, ran through Rolodex of different people uh, trying to find a good story. And uh, SJ really stood out to us and we're like, hey, let's give this woman an opportunity to you know, put her in the limelight. Uh, she's gotten on like uh, uh, the Good Morning Aust- I think it's Good Morning Australia, the equivalent of it. And gotten quite a lot of national attention as a result of the the shoot. So I did the dangling off the cliff part. Uh, uh, Karen did the photoshopping of making her walk again sort of a thing. So we teamed up and uh, you know made a difference through art, which is the one thing that we sort of know how to do. How did SJ's story come to you in the first place? How did you hear about her? Uh, I was you know through Facebook looking for uh, a good story of someone inspirational who had a great story to tell. And... Uh, found a photographer who knew a rock climbing company who knew of Estre. Just 
So are you are you taking time and digging for stories, or now that you have this reputation, are people just submitting stuff to you and 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 throwing ideas at you? Yeah, it's ridiculously hard to find great stories, actually, um, just because you're a, uh, you know, I I have maybe half a million followers across different social platforms. It doesn't mean that people actually get what makes a good story. So I do get a lot of inquiries and proposals, mm-hmm. if you will, but it's quite rare that those actually translate into any meaningful project. Um, I think there's this uh, misconception that I can make anyone awesome or I can make any story great or viral and it's just <laughs> not the case. Um, so, you know, I, I'll always try to help people when they reach out. Um, so what are the parameters for a good story? I mean, obviously you can tell by a proposal that it's not going to work. W- what are you seeing that is like, that's a story that I can run with? Well, first and foremost, I'm, I'm a photographer. So right. if, uh, if the person has a non-visible uh, disability, let's say, or a, an invisible problem that needs to be con- that that is just un- incapable of being represented, that's a huge thing that needs to be worked through. It's not impossible, but sometimes you just get stuck there. Um, uh, a lot of the projects that I do require access to certain things, and so that's another place where we get stuck. Some people are, uh, never think about how much work it takes to pull these things together, and incidentally, are un unwilling or uninterested in putting the legwork necessary to bring something together. So if I, um, if they send in a, a story and I say, Hey, sounds great. Can you get me this, this, and that, and I'll see what I can do. I never, I more often than not never get a reply mm-hmm. or it's just an incomplete one that can't be actioned. Um, and I think really it boils down to, so the easiest metric for whether or not a story is shareable to me is whether or not it can be summarized in a single sentence. So if you can't summarize something in a single sentence to someone you've never met before that sounds interesting enough to click on, the chances of your campaign getting picked up anywhere is close to zero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a that's an important element. You have to be able to take your concept and keep breaking it down and breaking it down so that it is a very small, concise message. Right. Once you Absolutely. do that, then you can actually really expand on the creativity. Yeah, people have no attention span <laughs> these days. It's so short. But you do take on things like the microfiber thing. In many ways, like... That you can't actually see those microfibers that you were talking about earlier, right? Mm-hmm. But you do find a way to illustrate a lot of things like that. I do, but um, so with with the microfiber campaign, um, which is to raise awareness for these microscopic fibers within our clothes—nylon, polyester, spandex, anything that's uh, plastic and synthetic—that uh, as we wash, release um, plastic fibers into the ocean that um, can't be filtered out by wastewater treatment centers. Um, the story there wasn't just the microfibers. The story there is a human story of three kids stumbling across an enormous problem that no one's trying to solve. And that's the real story. Three kids discovered this? No, they didn't discover it. Well, they, they stumbled across the research done by someone else and they decided they were going to make a solution. So they designed a bag that can capture microfibers. And, um, you know, they're just university kids. And that's the real story is this, you know, this David versus Goliath story. Right. And um, I'm just enhancing their story by giving them, giving people an excuse to click and learn more. And I'm enhancing their story. But in, I think alone, just my campaign wouldn't nearly have the same effect. And we'll see if I'm right or wrong. I mean, right. it hasn't gone live yet. It'll go live in August. And but. did you find them or did they find you? So they found me through um, a professor that I met at a retreat organized by the National Academy of Sciences, which brought together 10 creatives and 10 scientists together to synergize and see what could come out of it. 
So when are those images going live? Like when will people get to see them? We're talking about it, but they can't see it yet. Yeah, we're we're aiming for August, and cool. uh, what we're hoping to do is uh, call out a large corporation. Uh, GE is the current target. <laughs> and just you just called like, them out, Ben. <laughs> yeah, and just say like, "Hey guys, look look at this amazing work that these kids are doing. Uh, you guys have a proud history of innovation. You invented the first fully automatic washing machine in oh, the nineteen fifties. You uh, designed the first ever self-contained filtration system within a refrigerator. Why don't you guys take on this huge challenge and just?" You know, jumpstart the conversation and and show that you do care because they actually have an amazing green initiative. So mm-hmm. we know that they're a great um, they're a great company to push because they already have these programs in place to support initiatives like these. We just need them to say sure. So what would be the what's the, what's the best case scenario if if you had your way and GE responded like what would that look like? What would you the, expect them to happen? Well, the best case scenario would be that they would admit that there's a problem and say that they're going to solve it within a certain deadline and uh, work towards it and actually reach the point of designing something that can be brought to market. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a long battle, but I think with microfibers, uh, just like with most problems in the world, the biggest battle is awareness. And if consumers start demanding something and there's enough market interest, then the companies build it so that you know, they can generate sales. It's, it's just the way the world works. So, um, and competition too. If you get a, a corporate yeah. giant like that to innovate something, right. then everybody who is competing with them is going to have to follow suit. They're exactly. Jump on the bandwagon. Yeah, and in some ways it creates a revolution. So I, I don't know the actual mechanics of this, but like when when there was this whole battle going on for microbeads, those little pieces of plastic inside the soaps that they were fighting against, I think that the biggest chunk of the battle so first started off as a battle for awareness by all these environmental groups, um, but then it eventually scaled commercially, where it was like, hey, buy our product; it doesn't have microbeads. <laughs> And that just creates this great battle to save the planet under the guise of capitalism, which is really what we operate under. It's kind of like the, uh, have you guys seen the documentary on the story of uh, the guy that invented the Segway? He's oh, yeah. kind of an, an amazing kind of scientist and puts on a lot of um, <clears throat> United States, like uh, nationwide workshops for you know science conventions. But he had a problem where he wanted to produce a machine and get this machine that produced medical grade pure water to all the places in the world that don't have access to water. Hmm. And he spent years trying to figure out, he built the machine and it was just impossible logistically to get this machine to the right people. So then finally one day it clicked with him and he's like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to contact Coca-Cola. Because Coca-Cola, if you think about it, is in more nations than, uh, in more countries than the United Nations. Hmm. And if you think about it, they have the exact logistical distribution setup for getting yeah, it, liquids. It wow. there. And yeah. they they have a problem. Actually, Coca-Cola is hated in a lot of countries because they use so much of the water to create the Coca-Cola right, locally. So Coca-Cola said this, we will get your water uh, filtration systems distributed throughout the countries that you need them to be distributed to. But we want you to invent a better way, a better soda machine. So now if like you go to the movies, you see those soda machines where you put your, instead of the traditional like 12 faucets. Yeah, so you just have buttons. You have a button. Yeah. So this guy, the inventor of the Segway, oh. who many people actually think is dead and oh, died off of a cliff on Segway. It's just this terrible article that went. <laughs> and most people think he's dead, been died, but he's not. He did, he did a Thelma and Louise on a, on a Segway. That's the story. <laughs> That's like, the story. Right but anyway, uh, he, he made that promise and invented that in agreement, I think by 2020, that uh, Coca-Cola would have a net zero, um, uh, I guess, 
usage of water in that area because they're using so wow. much. Wow. That's so they cool. would they would by 2020 and all of I think globally, they will produce as much water as they're using, and they're distributing his invention to create medical grade water for all the places that don't have water. That's amazing. That is so cool. Yeah, it's, that it's, is so cool. I wish I was an inventor. You don't think you are? You don't think you'd? I mean, you're an engineer. Like, didn't you go to school for engineering? I'm a failed engineer. That's why I'm a photographer. <laughs> I mean, I, I worked three and a half years and it was fine. Was never and you, fired, you didn't like it? You, mining you engineering? You, you hated it or? I quit because I woke up one morning and I couldn't figure out why I was going to work. I mean, I had savings. I was still living at home with my parents. And uh, I just didn't want to do the same job in 10 years. And so yeah. it was like, why am I climbing the corporate ladder? What am I hoping to achieve? Where is this going to bring me? Were you wearing a suit at this time? Did you go to work no, in a suit? no, no. I I never <laughs> went through that phase of evolution. So um, never never wear a suit. No, no. Even what do you wear so, to weddings? A Von Wong shirt. Yeah, a Von Wong shirt. <laughs> it's, the it's tank. Like not what you're supposed uh, to wear. Also, I just <laughs> I mean I have a blazer on top. I need of to get shirt. a. I need my own Von Wong tank top. Just saying, you know. <laughs> I need Absolutely. to actually rerun this iteration because these are these all have synthetic fibers in them. So, Damn oh it. man, you're contributing to the problem. I am, I yeah, am, and bad. and and it's only going to get worse over time. All right. So before <laughs> that shoot on Instagram, currently there's another one that is post apocalyptic in Germany. Yeah, I'm I'm working with on Donald my words. Trump. I'm, I'm yeah. working on my words. <laughs> with Say with Trump. German accent. It'll be so <laughs> talk like let's talk about let's go back to the creative process. When was that idea planted into your head, and how long did it take to come to fruition? Like how long did you stew over that before you're like, you know what, I gotta make this happen? Yeah. So my girlfriend was going to Germany in what are we 2017? So in 2016 in May, uh, she had to go to Germany to shoot a wedding. And um, we have a long distance relationship. She lives in Australia. And I was like, gosh, I need to figure out how to get to Germany and how to justify six weeks of time that I'm going to hang out there and do nothing. So I started looking around for interesting things to do. And a group that I had spoken to in the past um, and, and collaborated with were called the Wasteland Warriors. And they make these ridiculously cool post-apocalyptic Mad Max yep. costumes and stuff. And I was like... Hey guys, uh, I'm like not doing the whole, you know, randomly cool photo shoots, but I'm trying to save the world. Uh, you guys interested in like an environmental project? And uh, it turns out uh, Germans as a nation are all super, I think they're the, they're the country with the highest number of members in Greenpeace. So that was your one sentence pitch. Yeah, it was like, hey, help me save the world. Yes. And, uh, and these guys were down to it. So I pitched them this idea of um, planting the last tree or some kind of post-apocalypse apocalyptic vision of uh you know um a group of you know guys in masks planting a tree and um and that concept slowly evolved over the course of a few weeks um uh started asking around for different location different recommendations and um and they told me of this you know a mining museum that existed in leipzig uh it was like an eight hour drive away from where they were and they uh you know, I was, you know, saw the photos of the place and I'm like, damn, this is amazing. You yeah. know, uh, full on mining machines that are three, four or five stories tall, uh, sounded like the perfect location. And so they found their entire crew of people, brought them over who didn't really know that much about the concept. They just knew it was going to be an environmental one. And, uh, on our end, we designed a bunch of props that we thought could just help convey the story and, you know, shot over the course of two days. And, um, and when I originally created the series, it was only meant to be, uh, kind of an anti-coal mining project. 
<laughs> uh, but it took us so long to edit the final video um, that by the time we released it, or I was going to release it in like November or December, it was right when the, the elections were happening with um, Mr. Donald Trump. and uh, Who's bringing back the coal mines. Who's baby. bringing back the coal mines. Oh, and yeah. it was like, oh Rolling my goodness, this is, this is so coincidental. And, um, and it just so happens that one of the models who was a businessman buying and selling oxygen happened to be bald. And uh, I think I was joking with my girlfriend one day and we like, what happens if I stick Donald Trump's hair onto this guy? What would it look like? And I just photoshopped that and it was like, oh my gosh, this looks exactly like him. So I had a little bit of an internal debate for a while on whether or not it was a good idea to start involving politics in my work and figured what the heck, let's give it a shot. So launched that campaign um, the week after his inauguration. Um, what sort of backlash yeah. was there? Any visa problems since then? <laughs> been audited yet? We'll find out when I uh, put in my application for a green card. I, I mean, I, I did actually, before the launch, uh, sent the post to uh, Donald Trump fans, like someone who had actually run his election campaign, uh, amongst really? others, because I wanted to make sure that what I wrote was not inflammatory. Um, it, was, it, was based, it was built on personal experience, and it was an opinion piece, of course. Right. Um, but I didn't want it. I didn't want to shut out the very people I wanted to communicate with. So I tried to make it as nonpartisan as possible. And I mean, I'm Canadian too. So you got that going for you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I'm, I, I mean, I'm Canadian. I'm not, uh, I'm not American. So really I have no place in American politics, but, um, did really try to make the best out of the experience and, and, uh, not be too inflammatory. I think it's interesting that it, let me see if I word this right. The people you're almost fighting, it's not really that you're fighting with them, but you want to engage with them. Like they're, they're probably more important to you in many ways because that's who you want to have the conversation with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to have a conversation with them. And, and that's sort of what my work is about. It's about the photography starting a conversation. I want people to look at it and be like, huh, what am I looking at? Is this real? Is this fake? Tell me more about it. And then I can actually drag them in onto this little adventure, tell them the amazing constructions and projects that have come out of it. And as a result, um, talk about why I did it in the first place. Uh, whether or not they agree with me at that point is fine, but at least I've had the chance to express myself. How much composite work or Photoshop heavy do you like put into your photos? Do you try and get everything in camera and make it as almost editorial as it's happening as possible? Yeah, I, I try to do everything in camera, but I'm not against Photoshop. That means that at the end of the day, my ultimate goal is to create a great final result. And if that requires Photoshop, sure, but I'm going to try my best to get it right in camera. What's been your, your journey to, do you, are you someone that naturally gravitates towards post-production and like you really enjoy doing it? Or is that kind of like the worst part of the whole process for you? Yeah, I, um, I started off doing a lot of fantasy work, right? And so at some stage in my life, um, I had gone down the composite route and I realized that spending 40 hours in front of a, 40 odd hours in front of a computer screen trying to edit the crap out of a photo that I did a really bad job creating in the first place, which is why I was editing it, was it's just hellish. a really, really bad yeah. way to live my life. And so um, ever since then, I just said, hey, you know, what do I love about the products that I'm doing? I love traveling. I love meeting people. I like the randomness of life. I love discovering new things. And none of that involves sitting in front of a computer editing. Let's, let's see where that goes. And then along with those initial experiences, I just... I came to the realization that, you know, we live in a digital culture where everything can be done, almost everything can be done better in post. 
And so people have this really real appreciation for people who put the effort to do things in reality. Um, it lends itself to a sense of authenticity and an mm -hmm. ability for people to connect to it. You know, I think one of the things that, that's most um, outwardly challenging about your work or appears to be is the production quality that you put into it. Do you, th and, I, and I'm a big believer that, that the things that we've experienced in the past really influence what we do. Do you think that the engineering mindset that you have has lent itself to the production that you do? Yeah, I, d I definitely think that um, problem solving is yeah. one of my greatest yeah. skill sets. I mean, I take big problems and I just boil them down to little problems and I'm able to predict where are the bottlenecks and how to anticipate for them and solve them and improvise along the ways and figuring out which are the critical constraints to move forward. And I, I mean, those things come naturally to me. Uh, whether or not that's a result of my engineering background or not is something I wouldn't be able to answer. I just figured out who you are. You ready for it? Yeah, brilliant. You were the combination. If MacGyver and MacGyver. Bob Ross got together and had an <laughs> offspring, that would be you. I don't know a better way to describe like ultimate problem solver. You can like use a snorkel and some duct tape to make anything happen. Or kill anybody, yeah. And then Bob Ross is just like creating awesome content that everyone wants to share and watch. But I don't actually solve the problems. I just find more awesome people to work actually, with. Actually, Gary, I think that's one of the more but, brilliant things you've but ever said. I think that might be the most brilliant thing I've ever said, first of all. <laughs> but MacGyver, no matter what, would find the tools perfect for that job. Oh, so, absolutely. Yeah. That, that, that snorkel and the duct tape are your, you know, the guy that's certify you, <laughs> certifying you and, and Bali. Boom. Yeah. Got it. We need to somehow get his DNA and Bob Ross's DNA. and Test him? Yeah. Someone. There's 43 and me. Just swab a saliva and boom, you can find out. Bam. 23 and me. Oh, 23 yeah, yeah, it's 23 and yeah, me. Sorry, not 43. Sorry, my bad. <laughs> it's all good. I, I wouldn't like, be surprised. They're not 43. 43 chromosomes, right? <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's, that's the secret sauce. Hopefully not in us. <laughs> Maybe somebody else, yeah. but not us. So I, I want to talk about something that you touched on earlier today in a totally separate conversation. Um, and that was the fact that you make everything with intent to be shared. Mm -hmm. which I find really interesting because when I look at your work, I think this guy is making images that he just wants to make, that he loves, period. So in, a, in that sense, it looks effortless from my point of view. Uh, not, not effortless in the fact that you, it, there's a ton that went into it, but it, it, it's, it seems like it's coming from some place with inside of you that you have to create these images. But there's a component to it where you're creating images that you're not going to make them unless you can really share them and they have some sort of viability socially. Right, right. I, th I think there's a burn in there somewhere on what you're doing. He just no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I no, I, th I I actually I think it's really pretty amazing. I was really surprised I'm when kidding, you said Rob that. Graham, calm yeah, down. No, stop oh, yelling. Stop uh, yelling. You know how defensive I am. Stop yelling. <laughs> I think I think there are two types of creatives, right? There are the yeah. creatives that create because they have to, and there yeah. are the creatives that create because they um they they want to. Yeah. And uh and and, and in my case, like I want things to be seen because. Right without an audience to create for, I don't see the purpose of creating. So um, I like to think that if the internet didn't exist, so mm -hmm. for 30 years back, um, not only would I not be able to create the way I do because I wouldn't have access to the audience that I do, right? Um, I wouldn't create, period, because there would be no point to it. Like, no one would see the photos. And, um, and I guess in some sense, so if we go back in time to my upbringing, where I traveled to 13 different schools in three different countries. I was always like the random Asian kid in the, in the class or the random Canadian kid when I was in China. <laughs> um, you know, I, I'd always like just sort of blended in. I'd never been like 
that's really the cool kid or or the reject is sort of like this invisible thing in between and and always just struggled to to stand out and be a somebody Mm -hmm. and so you read all these books and fantasy novels and science fiction novels and there's always a hero and a protagonist in it and it was never me because i was never great at anything um and i think in some in some respects creating uh, a story and championing a cause and and being there has this sort of a hero complex that sort of shines through really okay yeah so um so i'm not passionate about any uh particular thing i mean i care a lot about all the different causes that I try to support. And it's not that I, it's not a, I would never say something that I didn't believe in. Um, but at the same time, I'm not as uh, hyper-focused on a singular problem that I want to solve as, as the greatest people are. And so um, what I, what I tend to do instead is just find people who are doing great things and try to support them with mm-hmm. what I do. And, uh, and if I'm not able to contribute visibility to what they're doing because i i really fall into the category of a, a communicator um, i'm i'm marketing right. and communications right um that's like my singular purpose and what i do is marketing and communications if i create a piece of art that they can't use to say anything then it's useless mm-hmm. so i need to help them communicate whatever it is that they're doing to wider audience um about the things that they care about and that's get, the role that I fulfill. Right. Sorry, I, I get, didn't mean to interrupt you there. I, get, I guess why it struck me so much, because I've been in the world of commercial photography for so long, like everything that I do is an intent to sell, right? I peddle food and booze. So it's an intent to sell my client's product. And when you were speaking about this, I thought it was really interesting because you have an intent um, to have it shareable, to raise awareness, and that, that gets backed into your creative process. That gets backed into your production process, right. which is kind of... Uh, it, it, it's different from what a lot of fine art photographers do, obviously. It's different from a lot, what a lot of people who just are driven to create do. Uh, I think it's a different mindset, and I was surprised to hear that that, that was a, a big part of your platform. Yeah, um, and I guess it maybe boils down to the fact that I'm not really a photographer. I'm just a guy who knows how to use a camera and tell a story. So you define yourself as not really a photographer? Not really, because I don't take... you know. I walk around with photographers, you know, we go on these photo yeah. walks and stuff and, and they just walk around with a camera all the time. They're taking pictures of everything. I take pictures with my phone and I use them mainly to document a process or to give someone a gift. Um, and, and in that sense, it fulfills purpose. Once again, I don't actually take pictures for the joy of it. Um, the rare, the rare instances where I take photos for the joy of it and with no intent of marketing anything is when I use someone else's camera. Hmm. And then I will shoot a bajillion photos and never need to look at them ever again. And I'm very happy doing that. Well, I think you found <laughs> some secret sauce because somehow your images look like it's something that you're so driven to do personally uh, that it doesn't come off as this, well, I'm, you know, I, I'm going to do, I'm just got to do it. It's, it's Well, it's I think it's because I enjoy the adventure, the right. process of it, right? It's, it's everything in between, not the actual photography. So right. in, in some senses, I'm the MC of my own photo shoots. Right. I'm, I'm right, just guiding people through this fun experience and photography is the excuse to talk about it. It's like, hey, no one wants to talk about this problem. It sucks. But hey, let me give you like a really cool thing to like anchor you in and draw you in. So do, do you, you enjoy the sharing part more than the production part? If you're someone that wouldn't create these images if you didn't have that platform. I, um, I wouldn't say I enjoy the sharing part, but I, will, I would define the success of the project based on how shareable it was. So 15 years ago, let's say same circumstances, but there's no internet. Mm-hmm. What would you be doing right now? Clearly not an engineer. So where do you think you would have gone 
if there wasn't the ability to share so easily. What was happening 15 years ago? 15 years ago, I, I was no 15. But no, imagine <laughs> imagine you're, you're 30. First of all, Al Gore ago. invented the internet more than 15 years ago. <laughs> the internet as ago, we know it today, Rob. <laughs> let's, 15 years let's, ago, I made my first Hotmail account. So, <laughs> all right, so 15 years ago, you're 30. Hotmail! You're 30. Or let's, let's call it 10 years ago. And you're maybe, you're, you're the, the young, ambitious, confused Ben, ben Von Wong that doesn't want to go back to engineering school. What do you what do you think you'd be doing now? <laughs> if it's not shareable, because like like you said, like if you I didn't know, have the ability man. to share something, like I, I think I think the desire to make a difference came with the fact that I developed a voice, and so if I had never managed to develop a voice, it wouldn't have mattered if I had something to share or not, um, right? So it's sort of this idea that now suddenly there's a few thousand people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people looking at you as a role model, better figure out something useful to say. Or else, mm-hmm. it's, or else you become a, uh, I don't know, a Kardashian or something. <laughs> a has-been. <laughs> but but you just become like a person who's an entertainer. And so, right. you know, uh, that's something that, um, it just doesn't strike me as very valuable. And so, you know, when you realize that you have a responsibility to the people that look up to you, um, that gives you a reason to pursue um, purpose and intent a lot further than you would normally have to. What impression do you think most people have of you today? Like, how do you think you're viewed? Oh, God. Uh, Ooh, tough question. Yeah, definitely a tough question. Um, you know, I think it's a little bit split. There are the people who have taken the time to do the research, um, who know a little bit of my background. Um, I definitely know that there are a few people who look at what I do and be like, man, I wish I had access to that cash and... You know, I wish I was born in a family that I could be privileged enough to do all these things. Um, you know, which is not the case. I mean, I, uh, I I have been lucky in that I've been able to create, but I I don't think I'm necessarily um, super privileged. My parents are first generation immigrants, and um, you know, they put me through school. But beyond that, it's been <clears throat> just the general support a, a family would offer. So I have the advantage of a stable family, but not beyond that. So a little bit of defensiveness there, but. Um, what do people see in me? I hope, I really hope that the thing that they see is just um, uh, a guy trying to make a positive difference in the world. And, you know, they can extrapolate all they want from that point forward. It's fine. Uh, but uh, that's the one thing I hope that they see. Why do you think some would have that a, a wrong impression of you? What? Well, I mean, I, I play around with these sets that look like they're produced with hundreds of thousands of dollars, right? I mean, it, it's not accessible to get a crew to tie someone down underwater with underwater housings and everything. But, um, you know, the fact that I can reach out to a company like Nauticam and say, hey, would you lend me a housing for free um, is a byproduct of, uh, because I've cultivated an audience of a few hundred thousand followers with the ability to make, thing co- make things go viral that was cultivated through, you know, hundreds of YouTube videos and marketing hours like nothing is truly free but when you look at it from an outside perspective and you don't take the time to see how did this person get to where they are today i mean it definitely looks like i lead a super privileged life and um and i can see how that's hard um and and really their opinion of me doesn't make a huge difference the but but what i hope people come out with and this is why i try so hard to make my work accessible in 
the process. So I talk about how I use volunteers, how I um, I try my best to do the most with you know consumer grade equipment. You know, in the plastic bottle photo shoot, for example, we borrowed a uh, 52-inch television from Costco. We <laughs> we dangled the camera borrowed. over. Yeah. Borrowed. Borrowed. I didn't, know they, I didn't know they had a borrowing program <laughs> at Costco. <laughs> <laughs> what are you talking about? We use it all the time. Rob, shh. You just heard him say, shh. Shh. God, read between the lines. <laughs> and we put a camera. We dangled it off. But instead of using some, you know, higher-end, uh, you know, a jib or anything fancy, yeah, you, like a cherry picker. Four. We use two by fours and pulleys, um, and so you know, and, and I use a Sony A7R2. I don't use a, me, uh, a fifty thousand dollar medium format camera, not because I don't have access to it, but because I want it to still stay accessible to people. I want people to realize that if they put in the time, effort, and intent, they can do that. And I can't remember where I was going with this, but, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so so much of what I do and what I hope to achieve is to empower people to believe that they can do whatever it is they want to do with what they have accessible to them. And it's so easy to say, well, I can't do this because this guy has that and I don't have it. Um, but, you know, you're giving away power by doing that. You're saying like, oh, well, in my country, people don't pay for art. Mm -hmm. And great, you've removed all responsibility. You never need to try again because it doesn't matter what you do in your country. No one's ever going to pay for art. Or you can be like, well, in my country, it's really hard to get people to pay for art, but I think I can change that. And then you set your mind to it and you work at it. Um, and then maybe just, so just maybe you'd make a difference. Yeah. yeah. And, and so there's this like tendency for people to offload responsibility on the circumstances of their lives. And, you know, by no means do I, do I disagree that, you know, I'm, I'm lucky, um, but we're all born into X or Y circumstances. And those are the cards that we've been dealt. Now, what you do with those cards is where, you know, we're truly empowered or not. And that's what I hope people will, um, will remember and think about. So well, before we get too far off the topic, I want to bring up the topic of gear. Ooh, gear. Oh, that's yeah. way off the topic. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about some gear and you dropped a few names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to dive in there, Rob. All right, go. Get into this Let's question. talk about gear. All right, so back. how has your gear evolved and what is your 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 gear closet look like today? Yeah. What, are you, what are you, what are you using for most shoots? When do you borrow? When do you rent? What are you doing? What are you also shooting video on? Yeah. So gear is a really interesting um, journey. So, you know, I'm, I'm a dude and I think, oh, know, no shit. we love lot, gear. A lot of dudes with gear out there who yeah. have gear envy and, you know, total gear acquisition syndrome and just want to get as much gear as possible. And so I went through that phase. No Rob's doubt. Rob's in that. I, Rob's still in that phase. He loves <laughs> buying gear. What are you talking about? I he have way backed gear. off. You I have. went from Hasselblad to yeah. a Sony. Come on. That's true. Oh, well, then we have something in common, right? Absolutely. So I, I started off, you know, I with a Pentax K100D, worked my way up to the D300, got up to the D800, and then went up to, graduated to medium format, had an 80 megapixel uh, Mamiya Leaf um, sponsored, and that was glamorous. And then, and then I came to the realization, you know, you know, same, same with my lighting. So I started off with speed lights. I was using Nikon speed lights, and then I expanded to, like, the third-party speed lights just to have as many as I could, and then uh, upgraded to Ellenchromes, and then moved on to brown color, uh, thanks again to a sponsorship, mm -hmm. both in Ellenchrome and brown color. Um, and then I was doing these photo shoots where I had, like, $100,000 of gear, $120,000 of gear, you know? And, and it was so inaccessible to people right? Um, that... At the end of the day, people attributed the success of the photograph to the gear, not to the process or the work that went behind it. And that's it. a problem. So frustrating. Yeah, that's and, a problem. Nice yeah. picture. You must have a great camera. <laughs> and, and, and so that would be fine if I was in the fine art world, 
because that's the whole deal with the fine art world is to make your work as inaccessible as possible so it's worth a shit ton of money. Right. So it's worth a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) And and in my case, because my primary goal is to inspire others to pursue their fullest potential and to make a difference in their world, um, that was almost like antithesis to where it was trying to go. It wasn't about just creating something great that no one else could ever reproduce. It was about creating something great that other people felt inspired to do further. And so I kind of reached this conclusion that at the end of the day, I really wanted to bring things back down to a more accessible level. So... um, I still use my brown colors, but I've uh, left behind the medium format uh, shooting with a Sony a7R yeah, II. it's a great camera. And, uh, you know, Sony doesn't sponsor me. We have a friendship and all. Um, but it doesn't really, you know, it, it just boils down to the most convenient tool. So we're living in a world right now where it's not just about the stills. It's about the stories. And the mm-hmm. stories involve movement, too. And so Sony, as a brand to me, works really well because they can do simultaneously photo and video just as well one another. And, and um, I have 42 megapixels in a tiny body. I can bring two bodies just in case one breaks down, right. uh, which they do break. Absolutely. Uh, they're not weather sealed. They're not, they're not the most durable of systems, but they deliver a great result. So now I can have multiple systems. I can have tiny lenses. Um, I can do both photo and video equivalently well. I've just basically scaled down to the most portable um, kit possible that fits within a single backpack, um, toss on some lighting there, and then whatever happens, happens. And, you know, I go to shoot like um, the one that we were talking about earlier with microfibers. And I brought, um, I brought two lights, uh, my lens kits, uh, that was divided between myself and the videographer because he needed an extra camera. And, um, and I just said, who's got speed lights? Who's got stands? I have, no, I have no stands with me. Can you guys donate some stuff? And I ended up with whatever gear, whoever brought, and that was what I used to create what I do. Um, and you realize that you can create amazing things with, with anything. Um, and, 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 and this is sort of the side benefit of creating with a strong concept is that the gear is just a bonus. You yeah. don't need, you don't need it. The gear almost goes hand in hand with the statement that if you can take your concept down to one sentence, if yeah. you can take your gear down to the most simplistic tools that you yeah. only need, mm-hmm. the shoot gets better. It does. It does. Because you don't get caught up in all the technological issues and you don't get caught up in all. I have all this gear. I have to somehow employ it on the set. Right. Um, It's it's good to be stripped down. And that's coming from, I mean, Gary's right. I I was definitely. um, Until he met me. A gear junkie. Well, this I had a studio it's in Chicago. I had fancy. two two fully outfitted studios, and you know I've been doing this for a long time, so I was able to amass a lot of stuff over time. But I, I got to the point too where I'm like, you know, why am I doing this? I could, yes, I can buy this camera body, yeah, but for the price of this camera body, I can buy two Sony systems with duplicate sets of lenses. Why am I? Why do I want to mm-hmm. go down this road? Um, but don't you guys think that Bron Color and Profoto, which have always been kind of the the two pinnacles of, of lighting yeah. right those companies i feel like are starting to recognize that we are not going to survive unless we make lights affordable so like you know when broad and color came out with the ceros yeah absolutely you know, i was going to say that those to me are accessible those are on the same level as the a7r2 in terms of like quality for the price yeah i I'm, i would agree completely i've been a brown color guy for so long and the packs are so incredibly expensive you know a yeah. studio pack you're talking eight to twelve grand Bare minimum, right? That's a lot of money. Ceros, it, it, it's an amazing product. It's very portable, yet you can use them in the studio. I mean, we put them on booms and fly them in on every set. It's a total, it's a total game changer. For that me. always blew my mind when I, 
you know, first met you and saw all the bronze color power packs that were still like, you know, eight to 10 years old or 15 or whatever it was. They don't die. And yeah, they don't die. Yeah. And then I asked you like, you know, how much is one of these? And you're like, oh, well, what are they, 10 grand each? And I was yeah. like, shh, are you kidding me? You have 15 of these. Like, <laughs> how, how are you possibly, like that overhead is ridiculous. I was making like, a lot of money. <laughs> it was good. Yeah. Teach me your ways, Rob. Teach me your ways. <laughs> <laughs> trying to. I'm trying to. That's what we're doing with EDUs, teaching yeah. people, you know, what we do. But, do, but doing it in a stripped down way because you don't, it's a very different world. 20 years ago, 15 years ago, you Absolutely. needed those brown color packs. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, you couldn't make mistakes, right? Yeah, now no, you, you couldn't make mistakes and you couldn't composite. You yeah. know, retouching didn't exist <clears throat> at all when I started, except for literally on black and white prints, you know, with spot toner. That was retouching. Um, so you had to have a good amount of equipment because everything, you had to attack little pieces of the picture in order to create the picture. Now you can paint with much broader brushes and you can do this section and then that section and put them together in post and you couldn't do that before i mean it's yeah. given in many ways i love it now because i have such freedom to really dive into the details of, of my client's product and really highlight everything that i never could have done before when i would have 12 lights on the set and there were times where i had 12 lights and nine packs on a single set and it would take two days to build and that same set now can can be done you know with three lights and and a fifth at a time. Yeah, and it's of just, course. It's amazing. Yeah, I lucked out. I didn't have to be that good to get where I am. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that a decent amount of your work is coming from doing video. How did you, what was your pathway into video? Like, and talk to me about the times where you're like, man, that sucked. Like, I messed that up. If there were. Not, yeah, not implying I mean, that there were. No, my, my, my videos are extremely fluctuating quality. If you go in my YouTube channel, and, and this is one of the things I like to do, is I keep like all my failures online. Like You can go into my Flickr account and go all the way back to 2008 and look at everything that I've shot since then. Um, you can go into my YouTube channel and look at all the videos, 130-some videos that I've shot since 2008 and see like where they started out and where they've ended up. Um, and And the crux of like, why my brand is so scattered is because I rely so much on volunteers to come in and join the, the adventure to do whatever they want to do um, and empower them to do that. And, you know, I'm a, a small portion of their journey and they're a small portion of mine and together we help build each other up. And so videos for me have always been this, I, I suppose, a stepping stone. It's never been this, um, I never had the privilege of uh, designing the video experience that I really wanted. And I'm only just getting started to reach that stage where I've, I've started finally meeting amazing videographers who had the same vision as me, who, um, who can tell the story in a way that I would like to. And I'm, I'm just kind of starting to touch on that right now. Um, but it's been a really hard process um, to do that. So, you know, there, there have been tons of times where I've had to edit my own behind the scene videos. Uh, the mermaid piece I edited, I um, did the video editing myself, um, and you know we collaborated with the video editor who did a long cut, like twenty minutes long, and I took whatever that was there and I sliced it down. and And there have been different instances in that, and and it's because I work with people who work for free. Um, everyone can only allocate a certain amount of resources, and we make the best of what we have available. And from an outside perspective, it always looks amazing. Um, and a part of the reason is because only the amazing stuff surfaces to the top and all of the like intermediate 
intermediate failures in between are never remembered, um, which I have tons of. I have so many uh, odd failures of uh, videos that were never produced, of uh, videos that were um, pretty mediocre that could have been wonderful should they have had um, a better person there. And um, I don't really want to call out any <laughs> of my video projects because there's a person behind it. Sure. Um, but you can look at my, my behind the scene videos and just run through them, uh, dive into the, the past and just click on any random one and you'll see that they're extremely random. Right. I have some that are great. I have some that are mediocre. Um, but ultimately behind each one is a great story. Um, and that's the most important part because success or failure, um, they were great stories. And yeah. I think that's probably the greatest takeaway is that ultimately learning how to tell a really good story um, is going to be probably the most important skill set that we encounter um, in the future. So let's let's take a second and project to the future with robotics and AI. I'm going to close my oh, eyes. Boy. Here we I'm go. Close my eyes. Close your eyes, Rob. Close your eyes. <laughs> robotics and AI yes. occupying a future in which all the technical is going to be. Eyes. I knew you were closing your eyes. I did it. And then I looked at the camera and I'm like, I have one close. Uh, <laughs> But robotics and AI occupying where all the technical becomes automated, virtually automated with a little bit of direction. So technically, everyone will be equal. What really matters? What really matters is the ability to tell a great story. Um, Critical thinking. Because, because telling a good story requires connecting um, various domains, various analogies, various um, different intersections of industries into a singular track. That makes right. sense. That's Critical basic. thinking. And that, that requires... So far, anyways, at least a little bit further down the track, um, the human component. So that's probably the track that's going to have the most longevity. So projecting to the future where the computer can probably take a better photo than you can because it'll just amass a database of every single Nat Geo photo and just actually tell you what where to frame your shot. It's like everything the Lytro should have been. It's not a horrible <laughs> thought. It's not a horrible <laughs> thought. It's actually... Remember the light trail? Oh, yeah, I remember it. Absolutely. That, that, that had such potential. Hey, what has happened to that company? I, I think they, they went there? into 3D They're AI. They're great. They've moved, they've moved right. away from the consumer market and gone straight to a B2B model. They're offering yeah. their services with like a bajillion dollar camera that um, they will rent out that can autofocus itself at super high resolutions. They just created like one camera, one epic camera. Really? Like a super cool camera that can focus at will at any distance at like a super high resolution. I don't huh. know if it's 4K or 8K or something. All the and case. it costs like, all the all the I don't know what the numbers are, but it's something like $150,000 to rent it for a day huh. or something. Yeah, To rent it for a day, it's hundred. Something like that, yeah, because they can, you can focus and post. Start so you, out with like you a basically go camera. in, point your camera in the direction you want it to, and then you can fix everything. Is that needed though? Like no, what are we missing out now that. by like a good team and a good, you know, it doesn't matter if it's the stuff that we use, which is like Canon C100s, C300s, yeah. Or like a red, like really, what is that camera doing now? That well, I don't know if you could. I, honestly, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna buy into the fact that that it's gonna give you what you want because it's creating everything in post. You're not gonna get the same quality of a shallow depth of field with a good lens. It's, there's no way. But I think it does. You go can, to you like can simulate everything you because it, it's a depth it. map. It's a depth map applied to anything. So you could create. It's just science. It's just science. It's science. So, well, I actually believe, and if we want to still play in the future realm, yeah, yeah, we're going to be here for a minute. Computational <laughs> photography versus optical photography. Why is no one talking about that? Because no one knows what the hell it is. What are you talking about? Yeah, you have, the well, everyone has an iPhone. You have yeah, an iPhone. Yeah. You have an iPhone 7 Plus? Have no. you tried the depth map feature? No, I'm still on the iPhone 3. I'm Rob can't figure out his map. password for the iPhone 6, so we can't get him the iPhone 7 Plus. <laughs> I have a six plus. Come I on. think I think that within the next like three to five years, there will this, be this point in time where 
the phones we have in our pockets can do yeah. things that our professional cameras can't do. That's true right now. The it's, phone that's in my pocket way out way outpaces the, the you know the Nikon D1 that was my first camera or the No, no, no. I'm talking about equivalent level. I'm saying the professional camera you buy in a store today yeah. versus the phone that you buy on a shelf. Don't doubt that today. At all. Yeah. Within the next 3 to 5 years, we'll be able to outperform the device in some yeah. ways, not always, I but don't some doubt ways. That. Right. And 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 so there becomes this interesting moment in time where the phone in every person's pocket can do something that a professional cannot do because they don't possess uh, the technology. And and there's not a single major camera company that's focused on computational photography right now. The only people focusing on that are the cell Apple? phone companies. Yeah. Yeah. The phone companies. Yeah. Yeah, but they're not so, a, they're not a photography company. That's the point. They're not. Right. So what happens when a consumer can do something a professional can't? What kind of markets does that open up? So here, project into the future of a virtual reality future okay. where I'm able to take a photo with my phone that has multiple lenses and multiple sensors. Um, so it's able to calculate based on the multiple lenses the entire depth map of this room right now. Right. So I know how far you are from Rob. You know, and, and, and because I can upload this to the cloud, I can apply, say, a Google, Google image deep learning search onto it. I can guess what the back of your head looks like, what the back of his head looks like, what his right ear and left ear actually look like. And I can, they're pointing. I, I can actually develop a 3D I am actually model. An elf. I'm actually I can an elf. develop a 3D model from a singular photograph. Just because it's connected to the cloud and yeah, because it's got, it's, got, it's got more information than you ever could. Just so that means mind. I can take a photograph of you guys that can be uploaded straight to a VR experience that I can walk around in. So I could walk between the two of you and still see the automatically uh, computed the back frames. of our heads. Yeah. yeah. But a camera, a camera can't do that because it's not connected. No. Nor, nor does it generate the information required. And so every single VR-based company right now is focused on uh, video because that's where the market happens to be. Um, but it requires such a high throughput of data, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So no one's really focused on that space. Um, and the camera companies are just trying to survive because they're dying. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that just leaves this huge void where the cell phone companies who have a massive consumer market, massive amounts of data, massive amounts of cash flow, can innovate significantly faster. Um, and if every single person is a photographer who owns a smartphone, which they are, which they are, yeah. um, there will be a point in time where these devices will exceed the capabilities of a professional camera. And so where does that leave a creative like you and me? Retired? I don't think so. No. Totally it retired. It just means the market the market is going to shift. There's going to be this this shift. No, I'm I'm retiring. Do You're you, retiring? So no. do you think going back to something you just mentioned, do you think the camera companies are dying because they're making or one of the reasons because they're making 40 different types of cameras that all do like one thing differently. Like, like why would I need Canon to make 30 different types of cameras, both point and shoot and DSLR? Like the options are ridiculous. Like why would you make that many different types of cameras? Any thoughts on that? I mean, cameras are sort of like fashion. You're like driven by the market where every X number of years or months you need to come up with a Y different model to appeal to the masses to stay relevant. Um, and and then those uh, sales dictate whether or not shareholders have faith in a company. So basically, I think the market in, in, in essence is a little bit broken. And we can see that sort of play out, say, with the Apple computers, where uh, you, know to, you know that the consumer market is significantly bigger than the pro market. Oh, yeah. 
And so if the company with the intent of generating the most sales to increase the valuation of the corporation uh, is trying to generate the most sales possible to reach a larger demographic, they're going to design a, de design a product that will fit that demographic. Right. And so we have the MacBook Pro. Don't get me is, started on that <laughs> MacBook Pro. Oh my goodness. Which is a device that is designed, it's like leg legitimately a high-performing fashion yeah. icon. And, and, and or like the MacBook We're no. left behind. <laughs> we're left behind because we don't fit into the market um, the way the market is evolving. Well, a huge problem is also risk. Because, you know, you think back to the, the, the age-old adage in the business, there's no one perfect camera, right? There there's not no. one perfect camera that does anything. And for a company to shift gears, to create, to put so much into developing a camera that would do everything, yeah, that's a, that's a huge, huge amount of money. It's a huge risk, which is why they offer so many different types of cameras. Yeah, sure that's thing. Um, but then the thing is, like, great innovation is what drives, like, a company's reputation. So, like, yeah. when, when a company like Apple starts to flounder a little bit on the innovation side because they're developing greatly the consumer side, then you have Microsoft going, like, hey, look, we got a Surface Book. We have a Surface yep. Studio. Mm -hmm. You know, there are things that, frankly speaking, they're probably not selling that many Surface Studios, right? But everyone knows about it, and they're looking, and they're wondering because they're inspired. And so I think it's still important to create those conversations from an inspirational perspective. And I feel like camera companies, I mean, I think Sony is probably the closest one to coming up with a conversation-worthy camera. You've never seen right. something like this before. I mean, their marketing is really old-school Japanese. They're also, they're also a totally but, different type of company. They are a true electronics company. They make headphones. They, are, yeah. they make televisions. If you look at you know, the amount of consumer product that Sony puts out versus Hasselblad mm -hmm. or Canon. Right. I mean, Hasselblad, Canon, Nikon, they're very one-tracked when compared to somebody like Sony who right. has their hands in all consumer goods. And they've been making the guts of the big cameras for a very, very long time. So Sony's probably in a better position than anybody oh, to have that marriage better. between consumer and, pro and professional uh, and the way we live to kind of meld all that technology together. Absolutely. Yeah, hands down. Yeah. Totally agree. They're in the sensor game. Buy sensor game Sony, I guess. Is that's, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> yeah. So DJI, thoughts on that? Ooh, Bought Hasselblad? Yeah, yeah. Rob, you're, I think, you're, I you're a hostage shooter turned I, Sony. Ooh, yeah. Let's, let's get into it. <laughs> Maybe let's even bring up H265. I think, I think that DJI, it, it's, a good, it's a good move. I, think, I really do, because DJI has a huge amount of cash. Um, Hasselblad has a storied and First of all, it's history. pronounced huge. Huge. Oh, I'm, I, I yeah. apologize. Huge, huge amount of cash. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> Keep, continue. They, they have a they have an amazing amount of cash, and then when you can marry that with a with a brand that um, not only is storied but is so integral to the entirety of photography. I mean, Hasselblad has made a huge impact on photography as a whole by the cameras that they invented and the um, the products they, that they put out. So I, I think it's actually a very, very good thing for Hasselblad. And I'm, I'm actually really encouraged where they're going. And you can mm -hmm. see it in their new products. I mean, um, they, had a, they had a rough go for a few years. They made some big mistakes with some products that absolutely did not work. And they had some leadership that was, well, their leadership was a revolving door for about a decade. I think now they've got a real opportunity um, to do some very unique things where they're combining cutting-edge technology with a, with a company that has a huge amount of cash. Huge, huge, um, with a storied brand. To me, that that's a great marriage, and I am honestly very hopeful for the future future of Hasselblad. I think it's great. What do you think about that? You're, you I use agree. the drones. I do use the drones. the drones. I mean, DJI has done a phenomenal job of penetrating the market. I mean, they've killed 
everyone in the drone market. Yeah, yeah, they pretty they much did demolished yeah. every single piece of competition. And it wasn't through like sneaky marketing or anything. I mean, they have yeah. great marketing. They had great products. They had great everything. Innovation cycles. Like, uh, I feel like they just didn't make any mistakes along the way. I mean, they just yep. killed it. Um, and you know, I think they suffer a little bit on the um, engagement front with their fans and and whatnot. But um, you know, there are companies that reach the point where they just don't need to. Yeah. You know, yeah. when you reach a point where everyone loves your products and will rave about it, why would you ever? Uh, try to run the influencer game. And I, I think that's actually probably the biggest pitfall for the merger between the two companies because um, DJI doesn't have to do it and Hasselblad needs that. Like they need, they need a way to reach new audiences. They need hype. They need conversation. They need content um, that's going to connect with people. Right. Um, but I think, I think DJI can help that happen. Absolutely. Yeah, they, yeah, they can. It's, I would have said that Hasselblad yeah. would have been dead minus that happening without that. Quite possibly. Quite possibly, yeah. But yeah. DJI um, with with DJI innovation, I think something really awesome can come out of it. So I'm excited to see where that goes. All right, I want to walk this back to something that you said earlier, and you, you kind of keep touching on this. And I think one of the, the reasons why you're you're finding the success that you are is because of the way you approach projects. And you you, you said that you know your approach is you're the MC of your own photo shoot. Mm-hmm. You get all these other people to get involved with it and really participate. They're not, it's not just like they're a hired gun. No. They're really part of the project. They're investing in the project, which is why you wind up with a, a production that would cost $300,000 and you do it for about 20 bucks and, and, and the catering. The pack of Skittles. Know. Yeah, catering. <laughs> which is, yeah. And don't, don't you think that's, that's got to be um, kind of the, the foundation of why you're gaining so much traction right now is your approach to photography is very different because of the way you run the set. I mean, I don't know if I'm unique in the way around my sets and collaborations. I uh, I think I'm high profiled in how I do it okay. because I spend so much time on the marketing side of it. Um, but I know tons of people who do these trade for prints, trades for anything, um, that are able to uh, bring people together who are passionate about the same things to mm-hmm. make a difference. Um, I think, you know, there are like two ways to measure or two ways to get someone involved. You either, uh, so let's say you're moving. And you wanna you want someone to help you bring your sofa down seventeen flights of floors. Yeah, buy a lot of beer. You either offer them beer and pizza mm-hmm. or you pay them, you know, a hundred bucks. And um and most people just go for like, well, I might as well just pay someone. Or, oh gosh, I can't pay someone, so my sofa's gonna stay up here and I'm just gonna give it away or I'm gonna abandon it here. Um but like I'm of the like pizza side. I'm just like, hey. You have nothing better to do today, or I don't think you've done anything. Have you ever brought a sofa down 17 flights of stairs? Guys, it's going to be amazing. We're going to come up with all these different ways. We're going to try. We have like three different strategies. We're going to use like cardboard. We're going to use like a track. We're going we're gonna to try to like ride it down the stairs, and we can make a video out of it. It's going to be really cool. We're going to have a blast, and, and there's going to be pizza and beer on it. And at one point, you're going to be yelling pivot like Ross from Friends. Yeah, you know that episode? <laughs> do you know that episode? Rob, you know no, that episode. I don't, actually. Our audio guy's not He knows that episode. Uh, camera B knows that episode. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, like, uh, yeah, I just, I, just really think, I just really think it comes down to communication. And, um, you know, you can convince people to, like, we live in a capitalist world, right? So, yeah, by default, money makes the world go around in some way, sh- some way shape, and form. But ultimately, what do you do with the money once you get it? You spend it on experiences. And so what I try to do is just 
circumvent the money part and just say, hey, let's have a unique experience together that you would never have otherwise. And it's going to be awesome. Experiences, college tuition, you call what you want. Yeah. You, know? you kind of remind me of the story of the man that um, he's a fisherman and someone comes up to him and he he's not really interested in, in, in working all that hard and he enjoys what he does. And at the end of the day, he goes to his family and friends and has all the ex- all these experiences. And then versus you look at someone that works hard all their life to get to the end of their life and then just get to that family and friends experiences. And it's like, well, what did you gain from working hard all of your life and missing out on all those experiences mm-hmm. that you just talked about? It's like that fisherman, did he live a less lesser enriched life because he didn't have as much money or make as much money? And he basically lived a life of like enjoyment versus getting to the end of his life and then being able to be like, all right, you know, now I'm I'm old, I'm tired. I'm not even able to have those experiences. You know what I mean, Rob? I do. I think it depends on what you catch. <laughs> like, What would you catch if you were a fisherman? What would you fish for? Mm. What would I fish for? You seem like a smallmouth bass kind of guy. <laughs> <laughs> Am I right? Am I right? You nailed it. Yeah, yeah. I nailed it I right on the head. Bass. Wait, I want to go back to AI. <laughs> I, I, AI, you, okay. You, you, talk, you seem like someone who's... A little more hip than I am on like what's coming with AI. So like, lay it down for me. In the next ten to fifteen years, what are we going to be doing? God, ten to fifteen. I think I think people are trying to guess the next three, let alone the next ten to fifteen. Um, probably not going to drive anymore. We're going to have uh, smart cities that are interconnected, interweaved. We're going to have. Uh, I mean, there are these charts online that show the number of jobs that will disappear as a result of artificial intelligence taking over. Um, does that matter though? Don't we have the ability to create other jobs to make things more enriched with those people? Uh, I mean, I think you can infinitely scale into the digital space, but within the physical world, there are very few things that can't be fully automated. And it really depends on, I mean, I think there's a lot of like really cool jazzy talk about how fast AI is developing and everything, but we're still pretty far away from like full conscious, you know, uh, What's that Terminator Skynet thing going on? I think we're still pretty far away from Skynet um, in terms of full consciousness, but um, there are some really, really crazy, interesting innovations that are developing that um, ultimately the creative is super well poised to, um, to, to capitalize on. And, and we can already see it in, that, in, in, in the increased power of a creative to market themselves because how do people share content on like Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram? It's like photos, videos clever text bits. I mean, it's the creative that is really driving all the visibility and traffic that's happening. And that's only going to be enhanced as, the, as more things become automated, more of the mechanics become automated, more of the, the standard becomes automated and be expected. And anything that's expected um, leaves no, no room for innovation. And, and um, it's a really great time to be a creative. And if you don't feel creative, or you don't know if you're creative, I think uh, it's it's just time to learn and time to get into it. And um, there there are always people who are more or less creative. I don't consider myself particularly creative. What? Get out! E- get even, out! Wait! 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 Get, get out! Get out! Get I'm not. Out I don't. Here. I'm not creative. I'm a good problem solver. So I'm really good at connecting. Lots Isn't that different. part of creativity though? Like mm-hmm. it's a component of creativity. Absolutely. Um, but there are people that you meet who 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 are inherently super creative and i don't consider myself one of those i just i i live in the logical and rational world and i'm able to connect different things together to make interesting combinations 
And so I guess what I'm trying to get at there is I'm not trying to be self-deprecating. I'm just trying to be extremely pragmatic about my skill sets and that you have to look at what the components of what makes you human are to figure out how you fit into this future and not just be resigned to go like, hey, this is the way the world's going and I don't have any place in it. And if you do that, then you won't have any place in it. But if you look at it and be like, oh, wow, the world's kind of shifting really fast, I better start paying a little bit more attention and seeing where it's going to head off and see what I can bring that's new and innovative. And like, hey, I happen to be great at, um, you know, uh, uh, the color theory and, uh, you know, um, watercolor. <laughs> Maybe there's something there. And there, there is definitely something there. There's something in every odd, awkward combination that exists in the world that a machine can't be programmed to do that you can fill the void in. So when do you think we're going to cure cancer? When do you think, how long? I, I let's call that, it, let's call it right now, official, let's, let's put it set in stone. No, I think, think, we're I think that within our lifetime, um, the first amortal human will be a total thing. What so do you mean by amortal? Amortal is like immortal, except that you can be killed like with an accident. Like you could right. explode in an explosion, but you would not die of old age. You would not die of you are Disease. definitely a futurist. We've interviewed a futurist before, and you guys are on the exact same page that within our <laughs> lifetime, maybe your lifetime because I'm older, like people will live for a very, very long time. Yeah, someone yeah. our age, essentially, who's he's actually in season four. We've already recorded season four. And he's saying that in our lifetime, mm -hmm. someone, we, we might not live to see them, but in our lifetime, someone will live to see 130. 140, 150. Oh, absolutely. I, I think you're you're being too conservative. Really? I mean, we're at a hundred and that, that's such a we're like, at a hundred and ten now. Yeah. That's How so, can we possibly within before the end of your life not reach hundred? That, that makes that me feel so good, though. We're like, living in America where we're going back to the co the coal mines and we're going to prosecute anybody that's got a dime bag on them. We're going backwards. We're going to 1950. All right. So going back today, like your portfolio online, like what are you looking to add to your portfolio to make it? more robust or more appealable to whether it's a company that's hiring you or a nonprofit you want to work with? Like, do you even put much, much effort into like your online portfolio? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, um, our online portfolios are digital passports. I mean, they're the, mm. the portal for someone to see who you are in an instant and to grasp a sense of who you are, what you stand for, what you do. And, you know, we have so many websites online there <laughs> that are like, you know, I'll go up to you and say like, hey, can you show me your work? And you'd be like, oh, yeah, here it is. But I haven't updated it in like two years or three years. I'm like, then what the f what's the point of your portfolio? You're, you're actually, you have this useless portfolio that doesn't showcase what you do, that doesn't represent who you are. Why are you not updating it? And so, you know, I think it's super important to, to stay on top of it, uh, to, to update it. And, and to me, the best, the best platform as someone who's like not super technologically savvy is to to go with a portfolio based website you know a, a site that um that will keep up with the times because they're just designing templates for you and making it super easy to update so every time i launch a new project i can go straight into my website update my homepage. boom there's like a new video ready ready to go and it takes me three minutes it takes me less time to update that than a, a facebook post um, and that's something that's super important to me so i mean i'm a, I'm a photographer i use smug mug uh I have this like awesome uh, photography app on my phone so that, you know, if you, you, you tell me like, hey, Ben, can you show me uh, the last project that you did? Um, or like, tell me more about the Hunger Project. Do you have any behind the scenes? Like I can load all the galleries of every single project that I've ever done from the past to the future archive unlimited um, on, on, on my phone with or without internet. 
um, is something that I think is super valuable. And I, I think everyone should really consider that. Uh, offline viewing, that's nice. Oh, offline viewing is godsend. Critical. And like, I've, never even so thought, I knew, I've never even thought of that as a, a website feature. Yeah, yeah me off, either. That's never viewing. occurred to me. Yeah, so it's not, I don't think it's on their actual website, website, but on the SpongeMug app, it's got, it's got offline viewing. It's also got uploads, so I can upload. So um, I don't know about you guys, but you know, the best camera is the one that you have on you. Yeah. So I take so many photos. I take more photos of my iPhone than I do with my, my Sony. Um, and it's because I'm, I'm at an event, something really cool is happening, and I want to help people out and, and, and capture the moment. I'll take 300 photos. I'll edit it on Lightroom Mobile, and I'll just upload them straight to SmugMug, and now I have a gallery ready to share. Um, just the same way you would to a client delivery network, and um, and I can do that straight from my phone. And I think just staying connected and being available is just huge. huge so would you say. discourage people from using just social media sites as their representation of who they are? I, 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 th I think it's all like, it's not that social media sites are bad. You just need everything. You need to be a complete creative. Yep. And no one's going to take you seriously if the only thing is you have is like, go check yep. out my Instagram. Actually, that's not true. If you're good enough, it doesn't matter what you have. Even if you have no website, people will still come to you. But that's 1% of 1%. Yeah, that's I mean? like just such like tiny, tiny fraction. Yeah, I mean, I know yeah. some people that are not even connected to the web and they're amazing, yeah. but that's just so I weird. always cringe a little bit when I hear like, I'm, I only do Instagram, I don't have a website. And I'm, and I'm thinking to myself like, you're not thinking about SEO, you're not thinking about yeah. uh, Instagram itself isn't searchable online. They rename all your photos. So like, what is your more strategic approach to like when you upload something are you naming it when you upload a video and you're embedding it are you naming it like h1 h2 tags like the body text like a website itself is like a living organism and yeah, like you absolutely. need to keep pumping keywords into it to fuel its ability to like register with google and be like i'm relevant i'm relevant if you only invest in something like facebook or instagram which is actually really easy to do because it's how many how many platforms do you really want to be like updating you know what i mean like <laughs> I, th I think the, the people out there, if you're listening, you only have social media, consider consider yeah, updating and making your portfolio online, your own website, your own mm -hmm. domain, something like you, you really start yeah. with. And then I mean, everything like Smugbug's, else. Smugbug's like $5 a month. It's yeah. like not expensive to get started. Yeah. And it's like, just get, just, just do it. And just do it. Take, take a day and I have a website. Just upload <laughs> it. Just All do right. it, it's Nike. I think we should wrap up, boys. Should okay. you? What? Is it past your bedtime, Rob? No. You got to pee getting old. old. No, 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 no. It's just hot, and I think... Uh, it's a little hot. It's hot. It's a hundred, yeah, it's a hundred degree... I'm looking at Ben, and I'm thinking, Ben needs a break. It's a hundred like, degrees outside, and it's 80 in here. Yeah, we've, we've reached our... This like, is the last podcast we're doing without the Dyson super quiet air conditioner. That's because Elena's going to go out and get us like 10 of them. And yes. It's, it's going to be this it's like... The sauna episode. Fabulous windy spot here with no noise. How does it feel to be the last hot guest on... <laughs> on... very wet right now. Just, <laughs> I know. I think I'm moist. I'm, I'm schwitzy. I'm schwitzy. Well, let's wrap it up. Let's say, let's say thank you, and then we can turn the air conditioners back on. Let's so, Ben, thank that. you so much for, yeah, for spending time with us. Thanks for, thanks for swinging by. Thanks for... Thanks for stopping by. Should we make up an outro song real quick? An outro song? Sure. Dum ba dum ba dum bum bum dum ba dum ba doom ba ba. Ben to you. Music. Um, <laughs> 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 All right. We've never done that. That's good. To download this episode and the entire season three, you can go to rggedupodcast.com and also subscribe for free on iTunes. Uh, we're on Stitcher. We're on Google. And what's that other one? My space. No, it's not. Baby. Rob, it's not. <laughs>
Rob, it is not MySpace. I thought you said you were going to get us back on MySpace because oh, MySpace is making a comeback. Can't take it. It is. <laughs> and we're going to be behind it. We're going to bring MySpace back. Yes. Yes. MySpace Tom. He's got a great Instagram page. Yeah, he does. Cool. Does he? He does. He's a really good photographer. Is it at MySpace Tom? At MySpace Tom. Get that. Let's check it out. Well, See, I'm telling note, you, MySpace is coming note, back. On that note, check that out. <laughs> Okay, the podcast is over. But before you go, I wanted to let you know that I always take a penny from the penny tray at the gas station, but I never leave one.